I may be disabled, I'm not really that. In the order of service. When you don't sing, you get into a habit, a rhythm, don't you? Okay, after that song, we do the, 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 the message and so forth. Let's turn together to that passage that we read. Um, oh, I should just say by way of uh, announcements, you have your bulletins there, of course. Uh, but uh, there'll be no Bible study and prayer meeting this week. And uh, we'll pick that up the first week of, uh, of the new year. So let's turn together to uh, Luke's Gospel and chapter 2. We've been hearing a lot about the, the, the birth of Jesus. And uh, um, you would think after hearing all of those uh, accounts uh, of how magnificent it was, uh, what it would have been like to be those shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem that, that night when an angel appeared and then the heavens were filled with a heavenly host and uh, then to be in the, where Jesus was with the wise men from the east came with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so there was a certain momentum, wasn't there? Uh, and you think, well, chapters 3 of Matthew and Luke, if you were just reading it for the first time, we're going to see something amazing as the years progress in the life of Jesus. And yet, there is, uh, strangely, a hidden time. And that's what I want to think about this morning. The hidden years of Jesus. What happened? And I want to say that, on one hand, nothing happened. And that, on the other hand, all sorts of things happened that were very, very important. And we're going to look at what I mean by that in a moment. Luke's Gospel gives us the only snippet of information as to Jesus' childhood. It tells us that at the age of 12, he went with his parents to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast, to the Passover. And Jesus was 12. He would have been 13 the next year, which would have been his bar mitzvah. He would have been, uh, he would have become the son of the law. And usually after a bar mitzvah, you went into the family business. You took up your father's trade. And of course, Jesus became a carpenter. But he made it clear to his mother that his real business was his father's business. He was going to into, enter into the work of his father. Uh, he, uh, he, I must give out my father's business. So he was in the temple. I'm not going to go into that story this morning. That's not what we're going to look at. We're going to look at verses 39 to uh, the end of the chapter. So let's read that before we get too uh, far ahead of ourselves. And when they had performed everything, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to, the custom, according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished at his and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. Well, one of the important things that we often fail to realize in thinking about who Jesus is, is the importance of both his divinity and his humanity. It makes logical sense that Jesus had to be God himself come to save us. And that's what the Old Testament was setting us up for, wasn't it? Here was so many, as we've been discovering, so many verses in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that said that this person, that the Lord himself would come, that he would be both a man and God at the same time. He would be true man and true God. We know that that was necessary because we were in such trouble that only God could save us. No man can ransom his own life because we have sinned against God. That makes our crimes all the more serious. So he had to be God. But he also had to be a man as well. Because the Bible says that, that uh, we... It was from our race that the offense came. From our race must pay the price for what we did. So in the wisdom of God, God became a man in one person. So that Jesus' sacrifice, though it comes from the human race, also carries the value and the, the dignity of God himself. Therefore, God is able to save the world. Not just one or two people, but people from all over the world. And the temptation has been down through the centuries, if you look at 2,000 years of church history, as to emphasize one over the other. Some people have emphasized the deity of Jesus over his humanity, thinking that they were doing the church a favor. You've heard the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, that's not just Randy Travis that said that. That's, that's a, a, a common saying. I mean, Randy Travis borrowed it. But the idea is that people, well-meaning people, think they're doing well, doing God a favor by emphasizing the deity of Jesus and downplaying his humanity. And that gets us into trouble because we need a sacrifice. We need someone from our race to represent us before God. And if you downplay the humanity of Jesus, then we're in trouble. We have no sacrifice. We have no one to sympathize. We have no one to identify with. But then it, the pendulum swings in the other way, where people say, 
Well, you talk too much about the divinity of Jesus. We want to talk about more about his humanity, that he was more just one of us. And many of the liberal churches fell into this uh, uh, trap in, in the 18th century, the 19th century rather, where they, they just talked about the humanness of the Bible and the humanness of Jesus and downplayed his divinity so that to the point now where many mainstream churches just deny the deity of Jesus altogether and deny the, 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 the uh, uh, supernatural origin of the Bible and say, well, it's just like any other holy book. And we would push back and say, no, it is inspired of God. It's from God himself. So you have these two ways of looking at Jesus. Uh, but the truth is that we, we have to emphasize both his humanity and his divinity. But this morning, we want to look at the humanity of Jesus. Now, we've been seeing over these last number of weeks that Jesus came from heaven. He is called the Son of the Most High. Unto us a child is born, he shall be called the mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. But when it comes to those lost years that we talk about, between uh, Jesus' birth and when he appears on the stage of the national history of Israel, we, we ask, what was going on in that? Did Jesus do any miracles? Did Jesus make any great speeches? No, he did not. When Jesus appears in his public ministry and he starts to say all these things and do all these things, the people are shocked. They look at him and say, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this Mary? Aren't all his brothers here? Why is he saying all these things? And how can he do these things? In other words, Jesus was just, he lived in obscurity for 30 years before he went into his ministry. People were shocked. You see, if Jesus hadn't been doing all those things all those years, the people would not have said, wait a minute, what's he doing? No, they, they weren't. They were surprised by what Jesus was doing and saying. Because he had not been doing it before. He had not been making any speeches. He had not been performing any miracles. He didn't go to the little boy down the road that he was playing with who had broken his leg and, and healed his leg. He had not, uh, 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 you know, turned rocks that were being thrown at him into doves to fly away. Uh, he wasn't, you know, going on a picnic with his friends and putting out a big display of of pizza or bread or food or whatever. He, Jesus wasn't doing any of that. Because the Bible says that when he did start to perform his miracles, the people were shocked. He's a local boy. He's a local guy. We know him. We know his family. What, what's going on here? And they were offended. Does that mean then that nothing significant was going on in those lost years. In those years that we don't have much uh, of what went on in the life of Jesus. No. Like I said, Jesus was growing. He, he was 
someone who had who was bound to follow the laws of and customs of his people. He grew mentally, he grew physically, he grew spiritually from the time he was born to the time he went into his ministry when all of a sudden he appears on the stage of the history of Israel. So let's look at what was going on and why those years, though we don't know anything about them, I shouldn't say we don't know anything. The fact is, I'm going to tell you some of the things that did happen. So it's not that we don't know anything. We don't know much. And neither do we need to know much. We don't need to know. And it might be interesting what a teenage Jesus was like. It might be interesting to look and see what a, uh, 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 you know, a young adult Jesus was like. Jesus at school. Jesus at play. Jesus at the supper table. But God has hidden those things from us. But we are given a window into the natural development of Jesus in this section. Because Luke just tells us in certain particular words. First legal, Jesus was under the law. He was under the law as every other Jew was. He didn't say, because I am the Son of God, I am above and beyond all things. I don't have to do it the way you do it. Of the nine times law, the word law occurs in Luke, the word law, five of them are in this passage, which tells us about Jesus' relationship to the law and his parents' relationship to the law. Look at what it says back in chapter 2 and earlier on. Verse 22 Time came for purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they offered two, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Then on the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised, and he was given the, the name Jesus. Again, in verse 39... And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Verse 41, Now when his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So, what was happening in Jesus' life in those years? He was keeping the law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. He was a good Jew. He had inherited customs from his parents that his parents underwent, and that he also began to do in his own life. What a beautiful model for all Christian parents. What a model for all of us who oftentimes when people become Christians, they become filled with a sense of their own spirituality, and they begin to cut off their connection to the word or to obeying God's word. Going to church, going to the Lord's Supper, being regular in these things week after week. Some people have this super spirituality. They say, well, I don't need those things. I don't need the church. I don't need other Christians. I don't, I, you know, it's just me and God. I was talking to a lady the other day 
in, in, in Krakow and were catching up on things and she, she was uh, saying, well, I don't really go to church and I, I, I never really liked church, but me and the Lord, we have a great time to talk all the time. I said, well, you know what? God speaks in the Bible. This is his word. This is the word of God. It's the voice of God. People have this idea, again, being very well-intentioned, thinking it sounds very spiritual, right? Me and the Lord, we have great chats. Well, the lady has said, I don't want to hear his voice. What she means is she wants to tell God what she thinks of him, what she thinks of life, and that's it. She, she's not interested in hearing from God because she has closed the book. And she has shown no interest in the Bible. That wasn't the way for Mary and Joseph, who were bringing up the Son of God. They were bringing up the Messiah in their own home. They didn't say, now we, we have certain exemptions now. We can kind of throw it into neutral. We can kind of coast along. No. After they fulfilled everything according to the custom of the law, they returned to Galilee. And then every year they went back for the feasts, for the Passover. For all these things, they were regular. They, you see, becoming a Christian does not exempt you from what God wants you to do. It, it draws you in more. We, we read that in Psalm, uh, Psalm 19. No, we're going to read it in Psalm 119 at the end. How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I think about it. I study it. This is the way it was with Jesus. He was legally under the law. All those years, for 30 years, he kept the law. Just like we growing up, we keep the laws of our homes. We do what our parents say. And then when we get older, we keep the driving, uh, highway laws. And then we keep other laws in society. We keep the law. Why? Because we're good law-abiding citizens. We're not exempt from the law. We're not above the law. Are we? And that's the way it was with Jesus. He kept the law. That's how he lived. That's how his parents lived. And that's what he did. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jesus was born under the law. And Jesus, throughout the rest of his life, said, it is fulfilling, and fitting, rather, to fulfill all righteousness. I did not come to, uh, uh, to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. His word was continually his companion. He was continually leaning on the word of God, saying to the people around him, It is written, have you not read in the, in the word? Jesus wasn't exempt, and he didn't expect other people to be exempt either. Secondly, we see Jesus grew physically. Look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. Verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. In other words, in those 30 years, Jesus grew physically. And Luke describes it as 
as, as any other child growing up. The child grew and became strong. That's what we hope for all of our children. That's how we, uh, us, we adults got to where we are. We grew up and became strong. Physically, Jesus' boyhood was no different from anyone else's. He passed through all the usual stages of development, which is great because he knows what it is to be little. He knows what it is to be a child. They have child problems, child challenges. He knows what it is to be a teenager and have teenager challenges. He knows what it is to be a young adult. He knows what it is to have to pray for his food, give thanks for what he eats. He has to rest. He became thirsty. He needed things to grow and to physically develop because he was one of us. He was a human being. He was made like unto his brethren in every way, says the Bible. So Jesus is able to identify with every boy and girl, every young man and every young woman, say, I know what that feels like. Isn't that wonderful that, that we have a, a God who knows what it is to live this life? We have a Savior who is able to identify with us. He knows what physical pain is. He knows what it is to grow physically. And to seek to survive, to work, to do all these things. William Hendrickson, a commentator on the Bible, he said it's encouraging that Luke does not belittle the physical. It's not, it is not the human body in its origin and development a divine masterpiece. See, certain religions and even people within the Christian church have done that again themselves over the years. They've downplayed the physical. Some religions, they'll say, well, you have to transcend the physical, transcend pain, transcend this physical desire, and just kind of come out of yourself. That, that is salvation, then, to transcend the physical. But the Bible celebrates the physical. It, it, God, when he created man and created this world and all its physicality, the soil and hands and skin and eyes, he said it's very good. Very good. Who you are is not just your soul. It's your body. You are your body and soul. Jesus grew physically. Jesus took upon himself a body. And Jesus grew in that body. And he dignifies the human body. And he came not to separate the spirit and the body, the soul and the body. He said, oh, the body's dirty and sinful. We're going to get all over time, we're just going to get rid of that. And what's going to emerge is some, your, your, just your beautiful soul. And that's good. No. What do we find at the end of time? Paul says, when Jesus comes back, the earth and the sea will give up their what? Their dead. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We will be given new bodies. God has not 
throw these arms away. When God creates something, he meant it to be permanent. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, to redeem us, body and soul. And so we very much glorify God for the physical. When we ate our turkey yesterday and we poured gravy over it and we put the cranberry sauce and the and stuffing strategically placed on our plate and saw something physical and tasted something really good, that's, we're thanking God. We're not saying, oh, well, this is just something to be denied and I'm not going to enjoy this because the physical is dirty and is to be suppressed. No, we put it all on, some more than others, and we, we pile it up all around so there's not one space left on the plate. We look at it in all its glory and we begin to taste. And we begin to interact with the food, our taste buds and all the rest of it, and we say, aren't, isn't the body amazing? Jesus had a body, and he has a body. When Jesus left this world, he didn't just, like, some kind of uh, 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 caterpillar emerging from a cocoon, throw off the body and then emerge as a, a disembodied spirit. No, he says to Thomas, put your hand into the prints of the nails and thrust your hand into my side. And a spirit does not have flesh and blood as I have. Be not faithless but believing. Physical, physical. We are physical. God created a physical world. And Jesus grew physically. But he, he had not just the end in mind like to, to just be one of us in that sense. As I said earlier, God had a specific design for that body. A, to sympathize with us, to say, I know what it is to be tired, and hungry, and cold, and cold. I know what it is to be a teenager. I know what it is to be a child. I know what it is to have to be, have to be bundled up and protected. Jesus is able to sympathize with us. I know what it is to be tempted. The devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus was hungry after 40 days. He's, he, he felt the hunger in his body. He was thirsty on the cross. And he was tempted of the devil. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. He was tempted to transcend his suffering, to get beyond the pain and the agony. He felt the temptation in his body. But secondly, God was preparing the sacrifice. He was preparing the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. Because Jesus, as I said at the beginning, was going to, as God, manifest in the flesh, go to a cross, and satisfy the justice of God on our behalf. Justice that we can't deal with. We can't satisfy it. So Jesus has to physically die. God can't die. But Jesus, the Son of God, on that cross, in human form, dies on our behalf. 
That was the end in view of Jesus becoming and growing physically. And so Jesus became like us in every way, legally, physically, mentally. In verse 46, After three days, he found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus grew mentally. And as a human being, like every other human being, he grew in the information that he gathered. And as he gathered that information, he was able then to process it in a sinless mind and he was able to use that information for the right ends. And when we find him sitting in the temple listening and asking questions, we're not to think of Jesus there as a, a, a kind of a, a, a cheeky 13-year-old trying to stump the, 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 the teachers. Oh yeah, well what about this? What do you think this means? We're not to think of Jesus that way. Simply trying to be gratuitous in terms of his trying to trick people and show himself to be superior to them. No, what we're seeing is Jesus growing mentally in his mind as he gathers information, as he looks into the word of God and thinks about the world around him. He's growing in knowledge. So that there are things he knew at 30 that he didn't know at 5. We're not to imagine the Son of God lying in the cradle, in the manger, knowing everything that there is to know about human existence. There were certain questions that Jesus asked in his ministry. You remember when the, there was a woman touched the veil in Emma's garden? He said, who touched me? That was a genuine question on Jesus' part. Jesus himself says that the day of the second coming, no man knows, not the angels, nor even the Son knows. You remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago, and we said that that is not to say that Jesus does not know that now. He may in all likelihood know it now, but he did not know it during his earthly ministry. So he, as one commentator says, he repeatedly seeks to seeks knowledge through questions. That's what humans do. They inquire into their world. That's what God's given us, this, this deep sense of curiosity. He created man in this world, and he says, now go and discover. Ask the question. Learn through the asking of that question, the reflecting of it, the bantering of it back and forth with all your friends, what the answer is. Scientists and philosophers have done that down through the centuries. They've asked good questions. They've looked and read the questions that other people have asked. And how can we build upon those questions? That's not, that's not a sinful thing, not to know something. It's not sinful not to know something. 
It's not sinful to ask, have to ask a question. And Jesus had to ask questions. Why? Because he was a human being. Just as he had to eat, just as he had to rest, he had to gain knowledge from different places. And then process that through the word of God, through prayer, through a sinless heart and mind. And he would come to a decision. Before he chose the 12 disciples, what did he do? He went away and the whole night prayed. He prayed to the Father, show me what to do. Some night, he, he spent all night in prayer, praying for wisdom, praying for the Father to show him and give him information. But simply ask a question is not wrong. It's part of the glory of what it means to be human. What's going on in that universe in there? <laughs> Bees aren't asking that question. Beavers aren't asking that question. They're building the same old beaver dams that they've built for thousands of years. Same beehives. Thousands of years. They're not, they're not coming up with new beehives every year. But mankind is saying, we got to build a telescope that's going to shoot farther into that galaxy. We need to find out what's going on. Why? Well, why is man? He's asking questions. He's growing mentally. That's what it is to be human. It belongs to our glory as human beings, and it sets us apart from every other creature in the world. To sit back and reflect. You don't see philosopher cows, philosopher dogs. You don't see asking the deep questions of life, trying to probe into DNA farther and farther, or out into space farther. A man is... What's one of the, the greatest depictions of man? The thinker. You know that statue? The thinker. He's there sitting like this. I don't know. I don't know. He's sitting. He's thinking, isn't he? The thinker. That's a, that's a picture of man in his glory. And Jesus shared in that. He was there in the temple. And he was genuinely asking men who had studied the word, what do you think of this? Why do you think Moses did that? Why did David make this response? Well, son, I think he did that because of it. Oh, you're right. He grew in his understanding. He was asking questions. He was listening. All in a, sifted through a perfect, sinless humanity. Lastly, he grew spiritually. Verses 40 and 52 give us that idea. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom. He walked in fellowship with, with God. He grew in wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom and, and knowledge, as you know, are different things. Knowledge is being able to say, you know, my house is on fire. 
Wisdom is getting out of your house. That's applying what you know, right? Not everybody, a lot, a lot of people have knowledge. I can pick up my phone and be very knowledgeable, but anything you want to ask me, I can pick it into Google and I got it. I can be very knowledgeable. Lots of people are very knowledgeable. Not so many people are wise. And Jesus grew in wisdom. We are to grow in wisdom. And Jesus, as he grew, recognized how the truth of God made a difference in his life. He grew in his discernment of the will of God. He drew near to God. He grew in wisdom and applying God's word. And in every situation, as we've been seeing through Matthew, that's what Jesus did. Applying the word. People would come up to trick, trick him. What does the word say? The scriptures must be fulfilled. See, wisdom for Jesus was not living by sight, by what he saw, or by what he made, what, 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 by what he thought was right. He went to the word of God and he said, what does God's word say about reality? What's God's word say about suffering, about this or that? And he, and he grew in wisdom in terms of applying God's word to every situation. That's what we're called to do. We're, to call, we're called to grow in wisdom. There's so many situations in our lives, isn't there? Bringing up our children. Balancing our work and family. How to spend our money. How much to spend on this and how much to spend on that. Who to marry, where to live, all of these things take wisdom. And it all arises out of your relationship with God. The fear of the Lord, in other words, your love for God, your trust in God, God's view of reality, is the beginning of wisdom. You see? It's out of your relationship with Him and what you think about Him that you now start to answer all those questions of life. You become wise in your application of or to all those situations in your life. And that's what Jesus did. Out of his relationship with his Father and his trust in his word, he grew in wisdom. In every situation, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, then as he went into his ministry, the word never left him. He grew in wisdom. He grew spiritually. In terms of his maturity. In terms of his spiritual maturity. Just as, again, as a, going from a child to a man. Jesus matured. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Was he ever disobedient? No. But he he matured in his obedience. He went from a small amount of obedience to, to growing to harder and more difficult things. He learned it. He grew in it. So that when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And he was able to say those words. Not, your, not, not my will. Your will be done. That's where all of that obedience was leading, little by little, farther and farther, closer to the cross, to that crucial moment 
where he does not walk away from something he has to do. He does it because he grew in it. And he, it was perfected. The perfecting of our high priest. The perfecting of our Savior. And we say at that moment, oh, that's where the battle is won. That's where the battle is won in the garden where he says, not my will, but yours be done. This is the way Jesus lived. Obedience. Honoring his father and mother. Look, here's the son of God. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. What does that say about children today? Submissive to their parents. If the son of God, Jesus, was submissive to his parents, how much more are children today Study to be submissive to their parents. Then we find Jesus at the end of his life, don't we? When his mother, he sees his mother. Jesus is nailed to a cross. He looks down and he sees his mother. He needs, he knows his mother needs looking after. So he says, Mother, behold your son. By looking at John. John was standing next to her. And then he says to John, Son, behold your mother. Look after him. Take care of him. He was honoring his father and mother. He was keeping the law just as he started keeping the law by submitting to his mother and father. There was never a shadow. There was never a disobedient moment. There was never an imperfect moment. It was, he submitted himself to the spirit of the law his whole life. We look at our lives and we say, I have not done that. I have failed in those things. And this is where we come back to the start and say, what was going on in those years of Jesus? Everything. Because he was keeping it for you and me. He obeyed his parents when we did not. He loved God when we did not. He prayed when we failed to pray. He loved when we failed to love. He kept the law so that when we believe in Him, all of His righteousness is then put to our account. All this growing, all this developing, all this maturing is not just for Himself, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have his righteousness. You have all that he was in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. You share it all. That's what was going on in the hidden years of Jesus. And that is ours this morning. Lord, help us today to rejoice in all that you have done. Lord, in wisdom you have made the world. Lord, when we look at the universe and our bodies, we say how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. We, we, we cannot stop wondering at the complexity of life. And yet, Lord, when we look at the salvation that you have constructed for us and woven together for us in Jesus, we are amazed all the more.
Father, help us to be found in Jesus by faith. Not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God. So be pleased to be with us in the rest of this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.